If you've got your Bibles, can you open with me to Genesis chapter 6? And today I'm reading from verses 1 to 8. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. The last few weeks we've been thinking about the, uh, the fall and the results of the fall and the boundary lines had shifted for Adam and Eve. They were banished from ever being able to enter that glorious garden again. The ground was now cursed. Humanity would only reap from the ground by the sweat of their brow. Women would now know pain in childbirth and the longing in their heart would be for their husband, even though he would rule over her. Let me remind you that this is not meant to be a justification for men ruling over women. This is not God's ideal for us, but it's the result of the fall. As Christians, as Christ followers, we are meant to live differently to the rest of the world. We come today to a rather puzzling passage and the greatest theologians are in quite some disagreement as to what some of it means. The underlying message, however, is is still the same and so we'll get to that. But who were the sons of God? Were they fallen angels? The daughters of men, well, that seems obvious, but who were the Nephilim? Again, we'll get to that. So let's just go back just a tad. Genesis chapter 5 is like a parenthesis. Brackets, the start and at the end of Genesis chapter 5, we find there the genealogy from Adam to Noah. And it's a time frame of just over a 1,000 years, 1,055 if you add it all up. And for every father who is mentioned in the genealogy, it's, it's said that they also had other sons and daughters. Every one of them had other sons and daughters. It's been estimated that from Adam to Noah in that period of just over a thousand years, then the population on earth would have been well in excess of one billion people. 
that's a lot of people now spreading around all over the earth. In fact, some commentators suggest that it could have been up to 3 billion. So keep chapter 5 in mind. We'll go back to the end of chapter 4, the very last verse of chapter 4. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. This was toward the end of Adam's life. Around the time that Seth was born and he's beginning to have his own family, people were calling on the name of the Lord. However, as the years go by, and a thousand years go by, we come to the days of Noah, verse 1, chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They married any of them they chose. The note that daughters were born to, to them simply highlights the fact that all life is a gift from God. But we come to this troubling verse, verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They married any of them they chose. The sons of God married the daughters of men. Some theologians suggest that based on Job 1.6, that these sons of God were fallen angels and they were marrying beautiful women. I'm, I'm totally baffled as to why why the spiritual world would want to take on physical form, for one thing, and then intermarry with humanity. And as Jesus said in Matthew 22.30, at the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. They don't marry. The spirit world doesn't need to marry. The Angels are God's messengers. They're created in the spiritual realm to do God's bidding and they can only ever do what God allows them to do. And the reference from Job 1.6 mentions sons of God coming before him and then it says, and so did Satan. But Satan could only do what God gave him permission to do. A further suggestion has been that the sons of God are the sons of Seth and the daughters of man are the daughters of the ungodly line of Cain. This suggestion, however, negates the possibility that there could be God followers within the line of Cain or that there may have been ungodly daughters in the line of Seth. And... Where do the other sons and daughters to Adam fit into that? A similar and a third suggestion is that the sons of God are the righteous ones. They're the God followers, whilst the daughters of man are the women who are not following God's ways. Well, that too negates the notion that there could be righteous women and ungodly men. So... I don't have a clue. (laughs) I think sons of God means human men. There's a reference in, in Luke at the end of the genealogy that Luke mentions that Adam 
was the son of God. Men, sons of God, women, daughters of God, daughters of men, men were marrying women. And so regardless of whatever definition you might want to accept, I'm happy for you to accept whatever you want to accept in that sense, but the important point being made here is that people were no longer following God's institution for marriage. They married any of them they chose. And as many of them as they chose is the inference. This was polygamy. This was men marrying multiple women. And the language used is the same as when Eve took the forbidden fruit. These men they saw, they took, they ate. The words of God to Adam and Eve about the ideal relationships that we're to have on earth handed down through the generations was now just a distant memory. It was just like a whisper. Humanity was no longer following in God's ways, no longer calling on the name of the Lord. Independence and pride were now dominating the landscape for humanity. We'll live how we want to live and proud of what we do, what we can achieve. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that's now become the basis for life on earth. They saw, they took, they ate. The men took as many wives as they wished. They ate of the forbidden fruit. And so beware of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh concerns the way that we crave after what the body desires and the human body has appetites, appetites for food, drink, touch, intimacy, healing, etc. And so the lust of the flesh seeks sex outside of marriage, pornography, food in excess, healing through new age practices, drug and alcohol use, etc., Lust is trying to meet the desires of the body through channels of excess and addiction. And these pursuits take all of our devotion, all of our attention, rather than our devotion being toward our God. The lust of the eyes often leads to the lust of the flesh. And the world knows just how, Satan knows just how to use lust to market things to us, ornate presentations in shop windows. You really need this. Flashy lights at the casino, TV ads, through the internet, movies. Pornography is particularly problematic. Satan is well aware of the powerful tool that he has in using our eyes against us because what we see stays in there unless it's cleansed of the Lord and it can be cleansed by the Lord. And thirdly, there's the pride of life, that desire to be somebody, to do something in our own way, to to have recognition. All about pride and boasting. At the, the base of pride is the belief that we don't really need God. We can do it. We can achieve it. We don't really need God. 
And it's the pride of life that comes out in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Nephilim are mentioned in Numbers chapter 13. And this was when Moses had sent his spies into the promised land and Caleb was in favour of moving into that promised land whilst the others, the rest of them, said, no way. The land we explored explored, devours those who are living in it. All the people that we saw there are of great size. We saw Nephilim there. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. The Nephilim were giants. doesn't say in scripture that Goliath was a Nephilim, but they were giants. And it comes from the root word to fall. The Nephilim were thought to be those who would cause others to fall, to fall down. They could flatten you with a punch, squash you if they fell on you. They could cause you to fall. In this verse, they were the people that people honoured and even worshipped. They were the heroes of old. They were men of renown. They were who people were proud of and people were putting their faith in them rather than God. Pride of life. D.A. Carson said, People do not drift toward holiness. Have you ever noticed anyone drift toward holiness? People do not drift toward holiness. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We slide toward ungodliness. And that's what was happening in this society. Thus, verse 5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So in the space of a thousand years, humanity had departed from God's ways, his original design, his, his divine ideal. They worshipped one another and they worshipped themselves. In chapter 1 in Genesis, we read back there that The Lord saw, the Lord saw all that he had made and declared that it was all very good. The disintegration of society was so great that now we read, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human heart or the human race had become. Is our world any different? What of our hearts? In what ways has the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life crept in for us, for you? Such that we now live for ourselves, such that we praise other people before we praise God. 
didn't put this in the message, but there was a concert down in uh, in Brisbane last weekend. 60,000 people went to that concert one night and they were praising the singer. Satan must have been wiping his hands with glee, so pleased with what he saw. After a thousand years, verse 11, the world was corrupt and full of violence. Every inclination of the thought of man was evil all the time. Can you picture a world that is so off the rails and out of control? The escalation of evil, the disintegration of holiness over a thousand years was catastrophic. From what God created at the beginning to what now was. And although we read these words in verse 7, the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I've made them. Although we read those words, these are not the words of an angry, judgmental God. God is not bent on punishment and retribution. He doesn't seek vengeance for man's neglect or intentional abandonment of him. For the heart of God our Father is not like the heart of man. And so we come to those beautiful words, or go back to those beautiful words of verse 6. The Lord was grieved. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. I don't see a God of anger, a God with his arms crossed, or a God who is ready to take the first strike, strike a blow. But I see a grieving father with his arms wide open, still reaching out. His heart is filled with pain. We don't tend to think of God in that that way, that God grieves and, and his heart is filled with pain. Queen Elizabeth said, Grief is the price we pay for love. If we love, then we will grieve. You can't avoid it. When there's any sense of loss for something or someone that we have loved, then we grieve. And God is love. And because he made us in love, he was grieved. Again, think back to how, what he had created in the beginning to now where it was. Pain filled his heart as he looked upon his wayward children. Any of you parents had a wayward child? And you have some idea of what God's feeling. The Lord was grieved by what he saw taking place in the human race. The escalation of evil, the corruption, the wickedness, the violence, the way that man was treating one another was appalling. And their rejection of him and his ways, that was only ever for the good of man. 
He grieved for the relationship that was lost with humanity. He was grieved that they rejected his love and blessing. They rejected his blessing. He knew how wonderful it could have been for them, but they abandoned him. And I believe he was also grieving for their eternal lives. They would be separated from him forever. His heart was filled with pain for what could have been and now what was. His heart was breaking for lost humanity and he regretted that he had created them at all. How sad was God that his heart was filled with pain. This is a God of love. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. He's a God of grace, he's a God of mercy, he's a God of justice. And I'm sure that still today God grieves. He bears the emotional cost of a system that he designed and allows to continue even in its broken condition. He grieves for what could have been. So whenever we choose to do it our own way, whenever we choose to ignore God, to ignore his word, then we place a barrier between ourselves and God. If we fall by the lust of the flesh, fall by the lust of the eyes, fall by the pride of life, then God grieves for us. However, he is slow to anger. He is abounding in love, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And so as we close, I want to take us back to verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now it's been said that when God spoke these words, it's not necessarily about how long man will live on the earth. When God spoke these words, they were toward the people who walked on the earth at the time. In his patience, he was giving them 120 years to repent. 120 years to turn back to him. Remember, Noah wasn't just building the ark. Noah was preaching. Noah was calling the people to repent, to turn back to God. If not, they would die during a cataclysmic universal flood. And so the choice was theirs. It's during these years, verse 8, that Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. You and I are only here today because of the love of God as he grieved for his creation. As he sought another plan, another way to redeem lost humanity. The Lord is still contending with you today. 
If you know that you need to repent, then do not delay. Don't delay. Walk in his full blessing. He is slow to anger, but he will by no means clear the guilty. We're going to draw our service to a close as we sing a song. Worthy is the Lamb. And we thank the Lord for the cross. We thank him for the price that was paid. We thank him that he's bore, he has borne all of our sin and shame. We thank him for his amazing grace. And if you want to recommit your life to the Lord or commit your, your life to the Lord for the very first time, I invite you to do that. If he's contending with your heart today, don't delay. Let's stand and sing.